If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Lucas covered uh, chapter 11 last week, and at the very end of his passage, we find some of the most important words Jesus ever spoke. These words, Matthew 11, 28 to 30, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I was reminded of this in Gavin Ortland's marvelous book, Gentle and Lowly that these words are the only time in the Gospels that we read anything explicit about Jesus' heart. We know so much about His person and His work, but only here are we given the heart behind all that He has done. These words not only conclude chapter 11, but they also introduce, I would say, the main theme of our passage this morning. And so I want to begin by rereading these words. Beginning in verse 28, Jesus is speaking and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What did Jesus come to do? We can answer that question in a number of ways, but one way we could answer is it to say that He came to give His people rest for their souls. This is an explosive statement. And the reason I say that is because the theme of rest is a major theme within the whole Bible. In fact, the very beginning of the Bible starts with this theme. After God creates the heavens and the earth, in Genesis chapter 1, we are told in the first verses of Genesis chapter 2, that God rested from His work on the seventh day. He rests from His work, not because God is tired, but because His work is complete. It is perfect. It is finished. And then, as we continue to read chapter 2, we see that the Creator God invites Adam and Eve to live to enter in to His rest. To enter into His Sabbath rest. God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden so that they can live in perfect peace or shalom. This Sabbath rest is characterized in Genesis 2 by a right relationship with God where Adam and Eve dwell in God's presence. His very presence and live under his authority under his word and experience his blessing their rest the the rest of god and what that looks like in their life is also characterized by right relationships with one another and a right relationship to god's good creation 
So that's the rest that's envisioned at the beginning of the Bible. But when Adam and Eve sinned, this perfect peace is disrupted. One theologian says that the fall, he describes it as the vandalism of shalom. The vandalism of this perfect peace and rest. Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence and given a heavy burden. They were laden with a heavy weight of toilsome work and broken relationships. But then as God begins to redeem a people for Himself, He speaks of that redemption in terms of restored rest. God made a way for Israel to come again into His presence to be restored to a right relationship with Him. The the land that Israel was going to come into is described as rest. That's the literal word. Rest from their enemies. The tabernacle and the temple are described as a resting place. They are like a new creation, a new Eden. And then as God redeems His people, He establishes a covenant with them. And the sign of the covenant, what is it? The very sign that God has redeemed His people and is restoring them to Himself. What's the sign of the covenant? The Sabbath. The Sabbath rest was meant to point backward toward God's rest in creation and the rest that He was bringing about through redemption. So it pointed backward. But it was also intended to point forward. Actually, all of these pictures of rest were meant to point forward to a final and a full rest where God's people would live again in perfect peace with God, perfect peace with others, and with creation. So then Jesus shows up. And what does He say? Come to Me. To Me. My person. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When He says this, we are meant to see, as those who know our Bibles, that Jesus is the One that the land, that the temple, and that the Sabbath all anticipated. The purposes of redemption are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is seen in our passage this morning. Right after Jesus says, come to Me for rest, what does He do? He engages with the Pharisees in an argument about the Sabbath. That's not an incidental thing. It is very intentional in Matthew's portrait of Jesus that He is providing for us. As they engage in this controversy over the Sabbath, it becomes clear through subtle hints that Matthew is giving us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the rest theme in the Bible. Jesus wants us to see this. And He ultimately wants us... He didn't want us just to understand this cool theological development of a theme in the Bible. He wants us to come to Him. 
He wants us to see that He's the one that gives us rest. And He wants us to come to Him. He alone offers forgiveness of our sins. He alone can restore us to perfect peace with God. But the Pharisees don't see this. They don't come to Him. But that's not the worst of it. They also want to prevent others from coming to Jesus because they are threatened by Him. In Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for putting a heavy yoke on other people. Remember, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the Pharisees are putting a heavy yoke on the people. He also rebukes them for failing to come into the kingdom and for keeping others out as well. This is what he says, just to give you a little taste of what's coming. They, the scribes and Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they aren't willing to move them with their finger. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The Pharisees are very powerful people and they are threatened by Jesus because they want to hold on to their power. One of the ways that they exercised their power was through enforcing the Mosaic Law. But some of the things in the law, it would say, don't do this or do this, but then the law doesn't spell out exactly how to apply that particular law. And so what did the Pharisees do? They created supplemental rule books to help you apply God's law to your life. To help put a fence around the law so that you could be extra double, triple sure that you didn't violate God's law. These are the heavy burdens that Jesus is speaking of. For example, and relevant to our passage this morning, the Mosaic Law caused Israel to keep the Sabbath. And there's some guidance in the Law of Moses for how to keep the Sabbath. You're not to work on the Sabbath. You're not to gather firewood on the Sabbath. You're not to travel long distances on the Sabbath, but it doesn't say a whole lot more about applying the Sabbath law than that. So the Pharisees created um, 39 rules for uh, Sabbath keeping. Rules about the Sabbath to build a fence around this particular law. So in our passage this morning, this is a little bit of a long setup, we see that Jesus and His disciples are not following their man-made rules. It's not actually that they're violating the law of God, but they are not following the law of the Pharisees. And so, the Pharisees attack. What Jesus does is to show that His authority is greater than their authority they're not the ones to interpret the law. He is the one to interpret the law. His authority is greater than theirs. But in showing this, He also is wanting to show 
that his authority is not a burdensome one like theirs. It is meant to give rest for our souls. So if you would now, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> you may be seated. <clears throat> You'll notice there in your translation that this passage is divided into three sections. The first two are Sabbath controversies. The last is a prophetic postscript. Actually, the longest fulfillment formula in all of the book of Matthew. All three sections are mainly about who Jesus is. That's what they're teaching. And why we should come to Him for rest. I'm going to combine the two Sabbath controversies into one point this morning and mainly I'm only going to treat the first one. These Sabbath controversies teach us that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So that's the first point. And the quotation teaches us that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. So first, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. 
the setting of this passage in verse 1 finds Jesus and His disciples taking a stroll through the grain fields. I think this is in the morning as they're making their way to the synagogue um, for the synagogue service. And on the way, His disciples pluck some grain of wheat maybe. You've seen the wheat all throughout Kansas, so that's kind of what I've got in my mind. They pluck pluck a head of wheat off and have it for a snack. I don't believe they're doing anything wrong. They're not stealing. You can read in uh, the law of Moses that there was provision um, for taking grain out of the margins of a field and eating them for those who were hungry. And there's nothing explicitly in God's Word about picking grain as a violation of the Sabbath law. But, if you were to look at the 39 rules about Sabbath keeping keeping that the Pharisees kept in their pocket, then you would see that it is a little bit of a different story. They considered picking grain harvesting. And then as you would rub that that um, head of, of wheat in your hand to get the kernels out of it, they considered that threshing. And so they were violating the Sabbath. They say in verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath according to their laws. Now it's really interesting to me, part of what's so confusing about this passage is we expect Jesus to defend Himself But Jesus doesn't once defend His actions. He's not on the defensive. He uses this situation as an occasion to launch into an offensive teaching about who He is. He does say that the disciples are guiltless in verse 7. But instead of going on the defensive, He gives these Offensive arguments. Three arguments. All referring to a passage from the Old Testament. And then a conclusion. The conclusion is that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. I believe that all four of His points, the three arguments and the conclusion, are all making the same point in different ways. That He is Lord of the Sabbath. And that's the main thing that we are to take away from this passage. His first argument from the Old Testament is from the life of David. Verse 3. He asks if the Pharisees have read. He knows that they have, so it's more, have you understood? Which I haven't, as you'll see. (laughs) But have you understood this story from when David and his men were given the showbread from the tabernacle on the Sabbath? by Ahimelech, as they were running from Saul. Eating the showbread was clearly a violation of God's law, as laid out in Leviticus 24. But David is never indicted for his actions. This example, verses 3-4, to continues to elude me. I've studied it 
a number of times. I'm not sure what Jesus is saying. It's not clear to me how David was guiltless in his actions. And it certainly is not clear to me how this example justifies Jesus and His disciples. It could be that this is an example of doing good on the Sabbath. These men are hungry. They need food. They are uh, The priest is doing good for them. In the next Sabbath controversy, Jesus says, with a man with a withered hand, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. When Jesus heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, He's doing good to him. In the same way that the Pharisees might take their sheep who had fallen into a pit out of the pit on the Sabbath, which is clearly a good thing to do. In the law, the day of rest was not just for people, it was also for their livestock. Well, if you've fallen into a pit, you're not getting much rest down there. So it's good to get the sheep out of the pit. In the same way, if you're hungry, you're not going to experience much rest on the Sabbath. So it is good to receive food. Maybe this is simply saying, this example of David, that doing good takes precedent over strict ceremonial observation of the law. Or, another option is it could be a reference to authority. Maybe it was by virtue of David's authority as the anointed king that he was given a pass on the law. And in the same way, Jesus, who is greater than David, is Lord of the Sabbath. And so, by virtue of who he is, he gets a pass on this. The second example comes from the law itself and is clear. Every Sabbath day, the priest, this is found in uh, verses 5 and 6, every Sabbath day, the priests break the Sabbath because they're working in the temple on the Sabbath. The temple is the place where God's presence resides. It is the footstool, as we learned in our study of the tabernacle. It is the footstool of His throne. The priest... Therefore, on the Sabbath day, as they do their work, they are mediating God's presence, which is at the very heart of what Sabbath rest is. So the priests have a very good reason to be working on the Sabbath. We would expect Jesus to say that He's doing the work of a priest, and so He, like they, are off the hook. That's what you would expect to follow. But He doesn't say that. Instead, he takes things up a notch. He doesn't say, I'm a priest. He says, something greater than the temple is here. This is a critical statement. Like I said earlier, the temple is the place where people can enter into God's rest in some measure. The temple is the place where God is present among his people. And through the blood of a sacrifice offered by the mediating priests, the people of God were able to come into God's presence and experience relationship with God. Jesus is saying He is greater than the temple. Jesus is God Himself who has come to dwell with His people. He is the great high priest 
who makes access to God possible in Him, in His person, and in His work on the cross, people can enter into God's rest. They can experience forgiveness of sins, be restored to a right relationship with God. They can experience peace with God. What is the point of everything I'm saying? Everything about the Sabbath, everything about the temple, all pointed to Jesus. And now, He is here. Why don't the Pharisees get that the whole point of the Sabbath is to enter into the rest of God and now the one that brings the rest of God is right in front of them. He wants them to see that. But they didn't. And so he gives a third example. This time from the prophets. He quotes Hosea 6.6 for the second time in Matthew. He says this, If you had known what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Jesus and His disciples are guiltless, but the Pharisees are still condemning them because they don't understand the purposes of God. They don't understand the love of God. They don't understand the mercy of God. All they understand is power and control and rules about the Sabbath. They don't understand the heart of Christ and the heart of the Sabbath, which is to enter into God's rest. The full context of Hosea 6 sheds light on why Jesus uses this passage. In Hosea's day, if you'll recall from our study of Hosea, the priests are very faithful in following the ceremonial law of sacrifices. All the while, they're grossly breaking the moral law. Hosea 6.9 says this, As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They're going to church and they're murdering on the way. In the same way, the Pharisees were adamant about Sabbath keeping, especially their rules about the Sabbath, but all the while, they're banding together to murder the Son of Man who is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees wanted everybody to observe the day of rest the way that they did, but they wanted to put to death the God-man who would actually bring that rest. Look at verse 14 at the end of the second Sabbath controversy. The Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. Do you see the irony in this statement? They don't want Jesus eating on the Sabbath. Pretty restrictive. They don't want Him healing on the Sabbath, doing good on the Sabbath. But they're perfectly fine to hold a committee meeting about how to have Jesus put to death on the Sabbath. 
Jesus wants those who are weary and heavy laden to come to Him for rest. To come to Him to be restored to a right relationship with God. To have their sins forgiven. To be given eternal life through faith in Him. But the Pharisees are standing in the way. They won't come themselves and they want to put up as many barricades as they can for other people coming. Jesus won't have it. So He asserts His authority over the Sabbath. He says, who are you? Those who would conspire to murder Me on the Sabbath. Who are you to say how to observe the Sabbath? He has authority over the Sabbath. He's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. He is God Himself, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. But in asserting His authority, Matthew wants to qualify His authority. This comes out in the next section where Jesus quotes, or where Matthew quotes actually, Isaiah 42. The point is this. Jesus is not only the Lord, an authoritative term, the Lord of the Sabbath, He is also the servant of the Lord. Jesus is aware that the Pharisees want to kill Him, but He doesn't fight back. Even though He is Lord, He doesn't give these guys what they have coming to them. Instead, He withdraws He continues His ministry. Steady plotting, healing, teaching. People follow Him. But as they follow Him, He commands them to not make Him known. Because His time has not yet come for the major confrontation with the Pharisees. Matthew tells us that this withdrawal is to fulfill what Isaiah 42 predicted about the servant of the Lord. Who is the servant of the Lord in Isaiah? He is the Messiah. God's beloved Son. The One who is anointed by the Spirit and who will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This reference to Gentiles is so interesting in a controversy over Israel's Sabbath laws. We have a reference to the Messiah proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. And justice, I believe in this context, is probably speaking more about peace, shalom, rest for those who are weary and heavy laden. But it is not only for Israel. It is also for the Gentiles. But the bigger point here is found in verses 19-20. to This Messiah won't quarrel or cry aloud. In other words, His main mission at His first coming is not to stick it to His enemies. Instead, His main mission at His first coming is to bring rest to those who are weary and heavy laden. And this is reiterated in what we see in verse 20. A bruised reed He will not break. And a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. Jesus didn't come to fight with His opponents. He didn't come to run Rome out of Dodge. He he came instead to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to save His people. 
from their sins. He came to give rest to the weary, to restore those who are broken by sin to a right relationship with God. To bring the alienated, the banished, back into the garden, back into the very presence of God. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is profound, friends. This juxtaposition of truths about Jesus. When you think of the most powerful kings and rulers throughout the history of the world, whose names come to mind? The most powerful. The most authoritative. Maybe Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, both of whom we have studied here. Or maybe Alexander the Great, or Caesar Augustus, Napoleon, Hitler, Mao. All of them wielded incredible power. And how did they use that power? To various degrees, the story is the same. To crush people. To bring them under their heel. The same is true with many powerful people in our day. Not just rulers and kings. Most people with power tend to use it for their own selfish ambition. They're hungry for control. Many of them are unjust and merciless. You're familiar with the famous quote by Lord Acton. At least the first part of it. But what about the last part of it? He says, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Now listen to what he says at the end. This didn't get quoted a lot. Great men are almost always bad men. But not Jesus. That's what we're meant to see in this passage. This passage places two truths together that are almost completely irreconcilable in the history of the world. Jesus is the absolute ruler. That's what the first part of this passage is meant to teach us. That's what this statement about Him being the servant is meant to show us. He's sovereign over all. The Son of Man from Daniel 7 who has rule and authority over all things and for all time. Greater than David. Greater than the temple. The Son of Man. The Lord of the Sabbath. The One who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And yet, what is His heart? Gentle. And lowly. He doesn't discard the weak and the unimportant. He doesn't break the bruised reed, the smoldering wick. He will not quench. In fact, His perfect peace and shalom until they are known among the Gentiles, among the nations, until 
a people from every tribe, tongue, and, and nation come to Him, He will not bring judgment on earth until all that He died for come to Him. In fact, let me say this. When you think of God, what comes to your mind? When you think of God, what comes to your mind? A.W. Tozer said that is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you. Do you see God as a harsh, authoritarian judge who is all about the rules and then reminding you that you don't measure up? Or do you see God as a loving Father who would never judge anybody? Both of those views of God are wrong. Jesus reveals God to us. He shows us the true picture of God because He is the Son of God. God's authority as seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ are greater than any authority And God will bring judgment and justice to this earth to all who, like the Pharisees, won't come to Him. But He's also full of mercy and love for all who do come to Him. He came to give rest. He came to do good. Not only on the Sabbath, but for all eternity. So let me encourage you today if you have not yet come to Jesus, if you have not yet come to receive rest, come today. Come and know His tender care for you and be restored to a right relationship with God. If you have already come to Jesus through faith and repentance, let me ask you, are you loving others the way that God has loved you? Are you acting more like the Pharisees? Do not be given over to the legalism of the Pharisees. Love like we have been loved. And then take that love across the street and across the world for the good of others. Would you pray with me? Father, I marvel in this truth that the One in whom all authority in heaven and on earth is given is also the One who has a heart of mercy. Mercy toward me. Mercy toward all sinners that He came to save. So I pray that we would come to Jesus today and find rest for our souls. It's in His name we pray. Amen.